We have now released issue 3 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome. I'm Christopher Naughton. I'm honored to be working alongside longtime host Jeffrey Mishlove and co-host Emmy Vadness. Well, who's America's greatest spiritual teacher? Depends on who you ask. From the more conservative Christian side of the ledger, you might suggest George Whitfield or perhaps Dwight L. Moody or maybe Billy Graham. If you're more metaphysically inclined, you might suggest William James or Edgar Cayce or perhaps Manley Palmer Hall. But at the very core of the American soul, at the very center of who we are, lies this man, Ralph Waldo Emerson, not only an extraordinary speaker, writer, minister, the original American transcendentalist, but also an American iconoclast, a mystic, a man who was kicked out of Harvard Divinity School only to be asked back 30 years later, and by the way, awarded an honorary degree. How would he tell us to live today? What would he say about getting through these existential crises of our times? Well, to answer those questions is my guest today, Mark Matuzic, who's written this extraordinary book, Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life, Mark has also authored books such as Writing to Awaken, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, A True Story, The Boy He Left Behind, and others. He joins me from East Hampton, New York. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great delight to have you on New Thinking Aloud. You know, when I was in high school and college, of course, we were given books on Emerson. We were told to read Emerson. And of course, American literature is where we read Emerson. You know, looking back at it many decades later, I'm wondering, maybe they should have put Emerson in our religion and philosophy classes. Most definitely. Yeah, he's misplaced. But that's because he's been stripped of his spirituality by the academy. Uh, And one of the things that I tried to undo with this book was our misunderstanding of self-reliance as being this, you know, selfish kind of Ayn Randian individualism, and when it's actually uh, a call to spiritual action. And that's something, of course, there, you're not taught in high school. No, I, I mean, I have to thank my, my college professors because they did let us weigh into the oversoul and the universal eyeball and all of those very interesting metaphors, which I think I was just starting to get into, being introduced to you know, mind-altering substances and meditation. Emerson started to make his mark and maybe made his mark on a subconscious level. But really, when I look back on it, Emerson is the guy who vaulted outside of orthodoxy, outside of mainstream religion. Heck, this guy was too liberal for Unitarianism. He was. He absolutely was. And as you know, he was excommunicated from the Harvard campus for 30 years after having the gall to say that people could actually find God or the divine or transcendent awareness without a church and without an intermediary. And that was blasphemy uh, in his time. So yes, he was way, way to the left of Unitarianism. What I think really upset people 
from mainstream religionists to the Baptist and Methodist, and yes, even to Unitarians, it was more than just venerating Jesus. It was more than Jesus is your savior. It's you are Jesus. Mm -hmm. We are Jesus in the making. And this, of course, is long before a Carl Jung or a Joseph Campbell comes along and talks about a hero's journey. But in essence, isn't Emerson saying at that Harvard Divinity Address, I think in the 1838, you are Jesus in utero. He says, know yourself a man and be a god. You can't be clearer than that. And that, of course, was a, a great sacrilege uh, to suggest that we share that same transcendental oversoul uh, as all other beings and the divine intelligence itself. And for many people, that was just going way too far. Uh, and, and, but that's where Emerson lived. You know, he really was a mystic. And that's something that's not often said about him either. He was a great mystic. He may be our, the greatest. Uh, mystic of his era. Uh, and that is, as you know, real dangerous stuff for a secular culture that is based on scientific materialism and doesn't allow for the existence of a transcendent or a metaphysical reality. So you, you cut off at least half of who Emerson was and what his greatness was when you try to extract God from his teachings on human potential. And of course, like he and another transcendentalist, and again, he he was really the key figure in transcendentalism. Let's face it, he was the key figure in the transcendentalist club. He started the transcendentalist club. And yes, he had a lot of uh, compatriots and colleagues. And we know some of the names like Thoreau and Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott, many others, Elizabeth Cady Stanton a little later on, Margaret Fuller, Theodore Parker, we could go on and on. But only three or four, maybe five of those names, like Whitman, are known to the to the mass American mind. But it was the transcendentalists who really brought the East to the West. Explain that or talk, uh, talk to that, Mark. Well, they called Emerson the Yankee Hindu because the Bhagavad Gita was his favorite book. And he was reading it at a time when it was not familiar uh, to most people in the, in, the, in, the, in the new United States. And he smuggled it in through the philosophy of transcendentalism and that movement. You know, without without paying too much homage to the esoteric, you know, side of things, he really was trying to translate the Eastern wisdom, the perennial philosophy, uh, into an American vernacular that spoke to our individual, you know, our desire for independence uh, and to think for ourselves uh, and to rely on our own inner uh, resources. So he tried to translate the the mystic tradition. Uh, into a language that we could understand, and it went very far for twenty years or so. It went, it went, it went gangbusters. But we need to remember it today. You know, we've just forgotten that metaphysical uh, aspect of our existence is as important as the material. And until we regain that balance, we're going to be lost. And Emerson was saying that vehemently uh, all throughout his lifetime. The, that's the vulgarity of this country to believe that naked wealth, unredeemed by any spiritual value, would lead to anything but desperation and, and downfall. And so that's why I wrote the book. I want to bring that wisdom up to date. And also that all the talk these days around non-duality. I mean, Emerson was the original non-dualist. I was just rereading The Oversoul, uh, actually, this morning. And... Mm -hmm. It's the non-dual treatise of all time. Not only is it exquisitely written, but it's profound in, his, in its personal understanding of the state that he's trying to describe. 
You know, Mitch Horowitz is going to be joining me uh, pretty soon. He wrote the book, Occult America. You may have heard of it. Um, you know, we have often talked about the early American soul and some of the esoteric foundations of the American soul and how it came from the perennial philosophy. He's got a quote that I kind of like. It's, if you really want to know what the early American founders believed, go to the transcendentalist a hundred years later, mm -hmm. because that mystical outpouring that came through the transcendentalists was really built, let's face it, the, the, the earlier, the shoulders that the transcendentalists were standing on were, were the deists and the Freemasons and the Unitarians and the inner light of the Quakers from about 100 years before. So in some ways, this has always been part of the American soul. So Emerson really, as much as we laud him, and he may be the greatest American spiritual teacher of all time, he was standing on the shoulders of great men and women as well. No question. And even though Emerson warned against idolizing uh, figures from the past, that was one of his great themes, you know, to trust yourself, trust that you share that same light. Uh, there's no question that he was standing on the, on the shoulders of so many teachers whom he loved, whom he revered. Uh, and what you're saying is important because it's the aspirational element of America, the American ethos that's completely unique, that has never existed the same way uh, anywhere else. And that's intimately connected to his belief in the light, in his belief in the oversoul. He's not talking about selfish individualism. He's talking about understanding that you're a relative being, you have limitations as a, as a man or as a woman, but you partake of this enormous intelligence. You know, we lie in the lap of an enormous intelligence, he says in the oversoul. So what this path is all about is getting quiet hearing that still, that still small voice within us and understanding that we can bring that into our awareness through practices like meditation, through journaling, uh, through yoga, through communing with nature. We have that in us. And that's part of the American understanding. You know, there's something, there's something very wild and wilderness oriented in the American ethos. And that's what he, he as well, of course, uh, as Thoreau were tapping into. But Emerson, in his own way, without calling it meditation, was also a one who engaged nature. That's a big part of who he is. And they didn't use the term meditation, unless you know something I don't know. But that's what he was engaged in, right? Silencing, stilling the conscious mind. Absolutely. And he loved journaling. Of course, he loved reflection in the wilderness, in, in, in nature. But it's all about one well-spent hour a day connecting to our quietude, connecting to our own solitude, and connecting to that intelligence that we're talking about through by whatever means. A lot of, you know, nature is one of the, one of the most immediate ways of doing that. Because for Emerson, nature was God incarnate. It was a mirror of nature. And he also said that nature is our greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's why when he went to the Harvard Divinity School and he told those little boys to put down their books and go out in the woods, you know, he was excommunicated. But that's really the essence of saying, you know, instead of tuition, he was all about intuition. Yeah. And intuition is what we access when we go beyond the mind into our transcendental awareness. So it's not about denying the value of the intellect. Obviously, you know, he wrote a, a great essay about the intellect. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding its limitations. And the different languages that get us to different experiences. So if you need, to, if you want to learn how to put to, uh, together a chair, you read a manual about putting together chairs. If you want to understand how to commune with your higher nature, uh, then you go into nature. 
You know, I, I think, uh, I'm not a five and dime psychologist, but I think maybe one of the reasons that you have been drawn to Emerson, and we're going to get into your own spiritual journey before the hour is out, but some of the challenges that you went through, some of the darkness, some of the, let, let's face it, deep emotional and spiritual challenges, this is also part of Emerson's story, is it not? I mean, he is castigated as a young kid. Mm-hmm. He's almost forced into solitude in some mm-hmm. ways. He has um, problems with his eyes, I think, when he's a young man as well. He can't read at some point in time in his life. So he's almost not unlike Aldous Huxley, who also had uh, problems with his eyes. It's almost as if they were forced inward by what was happening to them physically and what happened to them emotionally. And maybe that's why you, you connect so well with Emerson. No question. When I, dis- when I found Emerson, uh, accidentally, I, I just stumbled into him working as a research assistant when I was in a PhD program at UCLA. Kicking and screaming, right? Kicking and screaming. But what really hooked me about him was how profoundly human he is and how wounded. He was sickly. He was moody. He was chubby. Uh, he was awkward. He was the Emerson child. Nobody expected anything from you know, he graduated, I think, number 30 in his class of 59 from Harvard. Mm-hmm. He was not an outstanding young man. It was all germinating inside him. Mm-hmm. But he was very, very wounded. He was, he was extremely introverted uh, and somewhat antisocial. He was uh, constantly tormented around uh, matters of the heart. You know, Emerson judged himself because he couldn't really connect very well social, uh, emotionally with people. And so this was a person in progress. So the fact that this sublime teaching came out of somebody who had to work so hard in his own life is what really endeared him to me. Uh, this is yeah, hard earned wisdom. He learned this, yeah. he learned this, um, you know, it, on the road, so to speak, you know, in, in the process of his own, of his own life. And he also, of course, lost his wife at a young age, a terrible Very thing. He age. lost his five-year-old son to scarlet fever. His namesake is, he said that was the greatest tragedy of his life. So the fact that he was so intimately uh, aware of loss and darkness and adversity uh, is what makes him such a poignant teacher for our time. Next to Thoreau, for example, he's much Mm -hmm. more profound in this area, uh, in this humanized kind of area than, than Thoreau. Thoreau was a little bit more of the social activist, right? He took he took the transcendental. I don't think Thoreau ever reached the level of emotional maturity, uh, and that that um, Emerson did. Yeah. Because first of all, he didn't live as long. He wasn't a family man, and mm-hmm. Thoreau is fantastic. But there's a way in which I feel like Emerson wrestled with the problems of being a human being in contact with other human beings in ways that Thoreau just avoided very rudely yeah. and, and adamantly. He had no, no, no time for that kind of conventionality. So Emerson engages the shadow. And again, this is decades, a hundred years before, uh, you know, Carl Jung or uh, Carl Jung or, and even more than a hundred years before Joseph Campbell. But this is about being a full human being. And he's talking about engaging the shadow. So he's telling us we evolve outside time and space, maybe many lifetimes, whatever it takes and he always talks about the inner light, but he doesn't sidestep the shadow. He does not sidestep the darkness. And isn't that the hallmark of every great mystic? It really is. He said he has been shown but half the universe who has never seen the house of pain. 
You know, if we aren't familiar with pain and loss and uncertainty, disappointment, heartbreak, we have lived half a human life. And it also burns down half the bridge of empathy to other people. So the fact that he had suffered so much gave him great feeling and fellow feeling mm -hmm. uh, for people, uh, people in their struggle. And that's why he was such a great teacher, because he had walked this path. He had walked his own talk and struggled with it and not completely succeeded. And he was the first person to admit that he was a work in progress. He had not completely arrived, but he was deeply familiar with loss and heartbreak. He lost his father when he was nine years old. He grew up in, in poverty. Uh, he lost his father, his wife and his son. Uh, and he lived also with tuberculosis throughout his life. He lived with the fear of a premature death mm -hmm. uh, throughout his life. So that to me, gives a, a, a very human texture to his majestic uh, teachings. When I think of maybe the two greatest minds in American history, and I look, you can argue left, right, and center, but a lot of people have called William James the greatest mind in American history. You look at the fact that Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's friends with Henry James Sr., is asked after his child dies, please be God's, godfather to my, to my son. And he becomes godfather to this man who becomes the father of American psychology and writes varieties of religious experience and starts, by the way, the American Society of Psychical Research. I mean, think of the symbolism there. I mean, isn't the symbol, what does that symbol say to you, Mark, about the American story and American mysticism? Well, it says that there's a network of wisdom that is larger than what we can perceive. So you could say it's accidental that Henry James, that he happened to be friends with uh, his father, that he then became, or you can say that it's part of a design. And Emerson believed that there was a design, that there was a kind of a tapestry, and he talks about mm -hmm. it in The Oversoul. I would say, and I can't begin to explain how it happened, but I don't know that it was accidental that, <laughs> that Ralph Waldo Emerson was William James's godfather. That, was that accidental? I don't, I, it doesn't seem accidental to me. What it say, it feels like a handing of the torch. Uh, and it also feels like because uh, James was a great psychologist, you know, he brought some of that understanding about the light uh, and transcendentalism into his, you know, into his analysis of the varieties of religious experience. And that comes, you know, that comes directly from Emerson. So there's a, there's a lineage, he's part of, there's a mystic lineage, I would say, uh, and they were two key links in it. You know, it's so interesting. You've lived through this too, but when the so-called New Age uh, happened upon America sometime in the 1980s, it wasn't just about Ronald Reagan and, and New Wave. Uh, you know, Shirley MacLaine's Out on the Limb came out, and there were a number of movies that came out that spoke of near-death experiences, etc. But let's face it, what was considered New Age became castigated as something airy-farious, something amorphous, something that wasn't tangible. Uh, really hit on both sides by scientific materialists and religious fundamentalists. And in some regards, some of it was well-deserved. But now, given 40-some-odd years on, can we look at that New Age movement in the 1980s as an attempt to rediscover the psychic, spiritual, mystical core of the American soul that was brought about by Ralph Waldo Emerson and was furthered by William James? No question about it. You know, there was a great ferment in the 60s and 70s of, of returning to the garden and returning to Eastern 
mysticism and bringing those those ideas in. And like every new movement, it made a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of charlatans uh, and there were no parameters and standards, you know, be damned. And we paid the price for that. I say we, people who are interested in spirituality, paid the price for that because you were tarred and feathered with the br- same brush as the chakra cleanser, nothing against chakra cleansers, you know. <laughs> or, or astrologers that, or tarot or crystals yeah, or what have you. We just thrown all of us into, if you weren't part of a mainstream right. religion, you were just thrown into this potpourri yeah. and, and looked down on. So there was a real condescension. And what we're seeing now, I think, is a second wave of what we had in the 80s, particularly after COVID. You know, yeah. We have a record number of people who are call themselves spiritual, but have no interest whatsoever in churches, temples, or organized religion. Yeah. So that's why transcendentalism is so, we're so ripe for a transcendentalist uh, renewal, revival now, yeah. but with a little more discernment, a lot more awareness of traditions uh, and actual practices and a more sober understanding of the uses of psychedelics and substances. Yeah. So they were, yeah. It just ran, mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. ran riot over us back in the 60s and 70s. And now people are using them very differently. They're using them ritually, sacramentally. There's a lot of science to back up what's going on. So it's not just everybody, you know, tuning in and dropping out. You know, people are actually using these substances uh, therapeutically to help them with their everyday lives so they can bring more of that consciousness into their everyday lives. That's, uh, that's, it's like, um, you know, it's, tra- it's like the new age 2.0, you could say, mm-hmm. but I don't really like new age. I'd like to just throw new age, uh, new, new age out, but just because it has so much baggage. Well, that's, that's p- part of it. I mean, in some ways I prefer what William James called it, which was the religion of healthy mindedness, new thought, and of course, there were some great mind cure slash new thought movements that came out of the late 19th century, really right out of transcendentalism. Let's face it. Again, I think you can you can follow a line from perennial wisdom to the deism and Unitarianism and Freemasonry of the early founders up to transcendentalism. And now this affects new thought. Yes. But, you know, it's it's funny. It never really I mean, it's it's all part of American psychology. It's all part of American identity, but it is not up in your face. I mean, let me let me put it this way. What might have happened if America had more broadly, and maybe we weren't ready as a country, we weren't psychologically mature enough, but what might have happened if America had adopted, let's say, the mindset of a Thomas Jefferson who created his own Bible based on the canonical gospels and the words of Jesus mm-hmm. and the works of Emerson as opposed to, let's say, Dwight L. Moody and Billy Graham and, you know, the, the, the very conservative fundamentalist movement, which became and still is a huge part of the American religious spiritual experience. In some ways, America took a turn in the road and you, you've got to wonder what might have happened if someone had said Emersonianism. Now, that's American spirituality, but it didn't really happen, at least not yet. Not yet. Not yet. No, I think we had a lot of greed and law, a lot of greed and conflict and disillusionment to go through before we could get to that point. You know, fundamentalism also, it also, it, it, while 
while aggrandizing the institution, it also aggrandizes the individual and the ego in a way and belonging and tribalism in a way that transcendentalism does not. And we have needed to go in that direction. I think we've needed to exhaust that direction to realize that we can't do that anymore. We couldn't have just leapt into transcendentalism. The country was too young and too fertile. People wanted to make a lot of money, wanted mm -hmm. to be number one. The triumphalism, the shadow qualities of the American ethos needed to play themselves out before we could circle back and say, wait, that doesn't quite work. There were good things about it, but now let's bring in the original vision of being spiritual beings who can prosper and who can awaken together understanding the danger of not doing so. You see, yeah. they didn't complete, didn't understand. There was slavery, but there was mm -hmm. no sort of global sense of doom the way we have today. Now we see the price of not having a transcendental uh, perspective. And so it, that, will give it imp that will give it motivation. That will give it legs, I think, to begin now to spread more widely. Not, the fundamental, not that fundamentalism is going anywhere, but we need this this side of our awareness to to be growing at least as quickly as that. You know, the title of your book, of course, has the word stoicism right there. Lessons uh, from an American Stoic. And again, uh, most people probably are, are under, understand what stoicism is. It it really is based on virtue. But before we proceed, I mean, what is your defi definition of stoicism, and why is Emerson the quintessential American Stoic? My definition of Stoicism goes back to Seneca and to Marcus Aurelius, uh, and it, it has to do with understanding how the mind creates reality, how perception creates reality, uh, and understanding that when we change what Emerson called our angle of vision, we, we change our reality, we change our, our deep experience. And that's why I called it Lessons from an American Stoic. Also, there the connection to nature that Emerson has with the Stoics, the understanding that the remembrance of mortality is essential to awakening. He mm -hmm. has a lot of overlap with the Stoics that people really haven't talked about much. So he's, he's, he's a fairly optimistic Stoic, but it's an optimism that is gimlet-eyed about human nature. He understands the, e the evil that we're capable of, but he never loses sight of the good. Uh, or the contention that that good is stronger at the end of the day than evil. Uh, the Stoics were a bit more pessimistic, and they're uh, they're more strictly psychological. Although they did uh, believe in God, gods, they were uh, he they he he writes about the Stoics in, in a lot of different places, and he was also personally. A stoic. He he, for example, recommended in everyday life: don't expect the best of other people. Don't expect that you're going to be the biggest in whatever uh, pursuit you're, you're you're involved in. Be more humble in your expectations, mm -hmm. and that's something that he takes directly from the Stoics. You know that wonderful thing, Marcus Aurelius: when you go, when you begin the day, expect that you will meet scoundrels and fools and misfits. And and Emerson, that's how Emerson lived. That is that he was, he was, that was really his credo. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was one of the things I think that held him back from trusting, trusting other people. But it, it's connected to the Stoic understanding that our expectations shape our reality. 
And that we can't understand our expectations until we question our thoughts, question our minds, and do that kind of reflective practice. Right. But in some ways, the end game was to discover integrity of character, virtue, virtue, morality. And I would think that in a polarized age, stoicism is needed more than ever. And I think you say in your book, stoicism is best when circumstances are at their worst. Yes. Yes. Marcus Aurelius wrote the meditations when a third of the Roman Empire was dying from the Antonine Plague. You know, they had a pandemic that puts our pandemic to shame. And it has always flourished in times of hardship because people in times when 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 people are going through the, the hardest things, they need a sturdy rope to hold on to. And stoicism, it's it's very hard to argue with stoicism. It's it's based on experience, it's based on common sense. And it's understanding that no matter what is happening around us, we have a choice in how our experience impacts us and how we respond to it. And that's also, that's vintage Stoicism, that's vintage uh, Emerson, Emersonianism as well. You know, going back to what we were discussing just a little while ago and the connection between Emerson and James, and I love the fact that you call Emerson a mystic. Again, they wouldn't teach that to you in high school English, I promise you. I'm sure you realize that. You had to discover that on your own or come up with that notion. But but certainly, again, he saw he was he had a spiritual base, saw beyond religions uh, for, for certain. But the thing that I think is so applicable about both Emerson and James today, what would be I would call their pragmatic mystics, hmm. that as mystics, they just weren't seated in a Buddhist temple in the Himalayas meditating. And again, not that there's anything wrong for that, that can uplift humanity as well. But the whole notion that the mystics that we have come to know and love over time were those who went within, got their realizations, got their intuitive insights, and then marched in the world. And when you think about it, transcendentalism, I mean, the Civil War would not have happened. The abolition of slavery wouldn't have happened. The labor movement, women's rights, uh, children's labor laws, the environment, etc. All of these are deep-seated values found within the soul, and then they are pushed outward. So if anything, Emerson and William James, the lineage here, the spiritual lineage is pragmatism. Yes, it's pragmatism. It's bringing the light that you've, that you've gathered within uh, to your relations with, with the rest of the world. And that, uh, until you do that, the journey is, is not complete. And Emerson was was pragmatic. That's what I was saying earlier about Thoreau. Thoreau was not pragmatic. He could build a he could build a cabin in the woods, but he wasn't pragmatic in terms of relating to people uh, and moving through love, for example, love relationships, the kinds of things that we deal with. Uh, virtue wasn't it was and it wasn't. I think it was more abstract to Thoreau. I think that Emerson really did try to live his virtues in being kind to other people. That was not Thoreau's forte. You know, he was kind to other people. And you're right, virtue is what leads to what they called eudaimonia, what the Stoics called eudaimonia, which is that ordered sense of happiness and well-being. And that has to come from balance. So it's about the middle way. I also say somewhere in the book that in certain ways, Emerson was a good Buddhist because he's always talking about the middle, middle way. And the law of compensation is all about understanding for every virtue, there's a vice, for every sweet, there's a sour. And moving through the middle of that is the human experience. And so that's why he, he does have a lot to do with, uh, with James in that way. And he was, he was a, definitely a pragmatist. 
You know, when I do interview folks on these topics, and I'm I'm always honored to to meet minds and souls of people who have delved within and have advanced on the path. But most of us, especially the baby boomers and and those people born in the 20th century, let's just put it that way, have generally evolved to the point where they see the word spiritually and religiously differently than they did when they were young. Maybe that's common with most of us. But you've had some major turns in the road. Tell us a little bit about your own spiritual journey. You know, how did you get from there to here? And if you could pick maybe one or two crossroads in your own life that spurred you forward, maybe that could illumine us as to why you wrote this book in the first place. Well, sure. I'd say the first one was when I discovered Emerson in graduate school. That really did turn my consciousness upside down. I had never come across anyone who had a sense of the cosmic view. Uh, and could because if I may interrupt, I'm sorry, Mark, but to just interrupt for a moment, you were raised in a household that was both Jewish and atheistic, right? So this, I mean, by the time you're 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 delving into Emerson, you've already made somewhat of a shift, or maybe not. Go ahead. Well, I grew up, as you said, I grew up in a house. It was a godless Jewish household, Jewish in name only. We never went to temple. There was no faith. Uh, it was a strictly uh, materialistic. American upbringing where success was the only religion. There was a mm-hmm. deep pessimism about the human race and what was possible. Uh, so meeting Emerson made me see the human potential in a way that I had never seen it before. But then for me, the real awakening, the real shift was when I was diagnosed in my late 20s with a fatal illness. Mm-hmm. And I it it tore my life in half. I left my my wonderful job in New York. I went on the road. I was a Dharma bum for about 10 years. I started to practice meditation and yoga. I met an extraordinary teacher. Uh, and that for me was, was the beginning of my life as a seeker. Mm-hmm. And it, had, it came through mortality. It came through the awareness that all of this could end tomorrow. Nothing else could shake me out of my you know, my alpha male American career. I was an editor in New York. I had what everything that I thought I wanted and I was actually miserable, but I wouldn't have acted on it if I hadn't been threatened physically. And I realized that I didn't want to die if I was going to die that young, as ignorant as I was at the time. It felt like being a sleepwalker, like being blindfolded and just walking off a cliff. So if I was going to be checking out sometime soon, I wanted to have a sense of who I was and what any of this meant. And was, was there such a thing as spirituality? So it gave me a great impetus to take this uh, journey. And it really has defined my life as a, as a writer, also as, as a teacher. I just want to let you know, this book, um, this book brought me to tears on a number of occasions because the poignancy of the American soul of the spirit of America, which gets lost sometimes, mm. is so present in your book mm. and is so present in Emerson's philosophy. It reminds me of what Jacob Needleman said. He wrote the book called The American Soul. Mm-hmm. And he said that America has a mystical core. And I would have to think that if anyone in American history exemplifies that more than Emerson, I haven't found him yet. No, I don't think you will, nor do I think you will. There's no question that we have a mystical soul. What fascinates me is that it's such a well-kept secret and that mysticism has such a bad rep. 
you know, and here again, we are into semantics. We're talking about semantics. We're not talking, if you described the mystic experience to your average Joe who had no interest in this stuff without using the word mysticism, they would get it. Have you ever been in the presence of nature when your mind quieted down and you just felt connected to everything around you? Of course. Have you ever in a moment of intimacy with another human being felt this unity that was bigger than the both of you? Of course. So if you talk about it in experiential terms, people get it. But when you put these words out there like mysticism or even transcendentalism, that's a scary word for a lot of people. It, it yeah. can, it can mm-hmm. shut down the, you know, you shut down your argument. Too many syllables, right? Exactly. Uh, so how is Emerson, let, let's look at how Emerson is applicable today and how America may actually be evolving. I love what you said, kind of circling back. Um, we've talked on this program about uh, cycles of history and I, I kind of concur. We're on this, you know, same place on the circle, but maybe a step or two up the helix. We are now experiencing ultra polarization in this country and really around the world. I mean, there are fascist elements, there's climate change, there's a lack of belief in our institutions. And again, I think we need to remind ourselves, we've been through this before. Uh, Things this dire and worse have happened. But why is Emerson so important now as we face this extraordinary polarization in the world and in our country? Because we've, we are waking up to the fact that without a spiritual foundation, however you define that, uh, this is an unsustainable system that we're a part of. Everyone that, you, that looks around, there's a vast majority of people will tell you that we're going in the wrong direction. People are looking for a reason to be optimistic, but they don't want an optimism that is delusional or Pollyanna. They want an optimism that's based on a spiritual sense of possibility uh, and potential. And that's what Emerson can give us. You know, people are, people know too much to buy into the fairy tales of religion. People want something that's based in an awareness of human, of the goodness uh, inherent in human nature. And I think that's why Buddhism has had such a huge uh, impact on American culture because it understands that we are fundamentally good and that when we act in ways that aren't good it's based on ignorance it's not based on original sin uh, and of course that's what emerson was saying as well this is not because there's something wrong with us the people today and educated or not people with any kind of awareness to most people would uh, don't buy into this idea of there being something fundamentally evil i'm not about about human beings. And so that's what, that's what Emerson has to offer us is this, this optimism that is uh, reality-based, mm-hmm. uh, understanding that we need to uh, do our own work, that it's on, on us to do our mm-hmm. own work. And that's the other thing is that Americans are pretty good at that. Once we understand what, our, what the marching order is, uh, we will do it. And so if you say to people, there are practices there are ways of moving toward and uncovering, cultivating your virtue, and then it feels good, and then it's good for your health, you know, psychological, physical, spiritual health. Americans will do it. We're very enthusiastic people. You know, enthusiasm comes from the Greek root for filled with God. We are filled with God. We are enthusiastic. We are mystical at our core, but we need to find a way of communicating that that doesn't put people off. So it needs to be grounded. Uh, and it needs to avoid some of the isms that we were just 
talking about and keep it uh, keep it experiential. And that's what I tried to do with this book. I wanted this book to be very practical, and that's why I included spiritual exercises so that yes, people can you. use these this wisdom uh, to uh, you know integrate into their own lives, their behaviors, their understandings, and to mitigate their own suffering. People are suffering, and that's the reason that we're having such a huge explosion of spirituality. As the dangers of the world increase, as people get more scared, and as we see what we're doing to the planet, uh, we're reaching for what what is beyond what we've been taught about our own potential and what it means to be an American. What can we do about Gen Z and millennials who are going through these problems dealing with social media and the fact that, you know, their fear of missing out and the whole notion that, you know, their their suicide rates are higher, their depression rates are higher, their friendship rates are lower. Again, how does Emerson help fill that void? When he talks about spending one one well-spent hour a day in self-connection, whether however you define that, whether it's journaling, whether it's therapy, whether it's deep dialogue, whether it's time spent in nature, whether it's prayer, contemplation, uh, he's talking about an antidote to exactly the things that you're just you're just talking about uh, regarding social media and the kind of the post-traumatic shock and stress that we all feel around the events of the world. The antidote to that is self-connection. The antidote to that is grounding ourselves in a spiritual awareness, however we define that. And what I see among young people is a real hunger for that. They just don't want it crammed down their throats, and they don't want the the BS of a lot of institutionalized uh, traditions that they that are patently, transparently absurd. They're very smart. The thing about the young folk these days, I sound so old, but they're, they're so much better informed than I was at that age. They have the internet, they have access to so much information. They want a more sophisticated, nuanced uh, approach to selfhood, capital S. And that's what, the millenn- that's what the perennial philosophy can give them. That's what non-duality, that's what Emerson can give them is something that they can relate to that isn't based on just something somebody said. You know, why should I do this? Because I said so, or, you know, this, that's the tradition that will never satisfy a, a scientifically minded population. People know too much. So any philosophy that's going to make a difference in people's lives now has to encompass the knowledge that we have uh, through science and through uh, technology. So it needs to, it needs to include, it needs to be an integral approach uh, that doesn't leave out and doesn't judge people or have unrealistic expectations about you need to go off into a cave and to do this. No, you can eat, we can do this in the, in the, in the current of our lives when we, when we do it deliberately. And, and again, I, I would think that Emerson is, in, is instructive for the times we're in, because if you look at the cycles of history, we're kind of in the same place we were uh, at the time of the Civil War. We can't lose sight of the fact that these men, as spiritual seeking as they were, and women, of course, as spiritual seeking as they were, never lost sight of the fact that there was an existential crisis on the horizon and then in their lives, and they needed to step up. Exactly. That's exactly the reason that there is this ferment of spiritual uh, seeking these days, because there's so much danger in the world, because there's so much uh, suffering, and and people are scared. 
And when people are scared, they do one of two things. They either go toward fundamentalism. Sociology tells us that, and psychologists tell us that in times like this, people become more fearful, more tribal, more exclusive, more polarized, or make the more difficult decision to move toward freedom, to say, if that we see where that goes, we need to go in that direction. That's the hope. The hope is that people will be scared enough uh, to turn to a new kind of way of seeing, a new solution. That's what transcendentalism has to offer. It's a, it's a new solution and it one, one that actually offers hope that we haven't, of a way of living that we haven't actually tried before en masse. You know, imagine if people, if this was, you know, more common knowledge that, you know, self-reliance is reliance on God, you know, that, that there is within us this extraordinary potential. That's what gives us hope to do the difficult things we have to do to make the world better. You know, it's so easy to be cynical and, and, and pessimism mm-hmm. is, it's a failure of the imagination. You know, it, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's much harder to dare uh, to have hope, but a hope that's, that is um, informed by wisdom. Yes. And that informed wisdom that wisdom. includes impermanence, wisdom that includes the whole range of human behavior. I think it was Madame Blavatsky, one of her, you know, colleagues said that Emerson was her John the Baptist. (laughs) And of course, she started theosophy. And again, theosophy and Blavatsky had an impact on Gandhi, who had Mm -hmm. an impact on Howard Thurman, who had Mm -hmm. an impact on Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, Emersonianism has gone around the world and has found itself back here in America, even though it had to go through Blavatsky, Gandhi, Thurman to get back to Martin Luther King. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And it's a good thing it did because not a moment too soon. So the question is, how can we bring these thoughts into the mainstream without turning people off? You know, most of my career has been spent trying to smuggle esoteric information into a mainstream audience. When I wrote my first memoir, I wasn't interested in preaching to the choir. I wanted to talk to cynical, skeptical people like myself sitting in their offices, for example, in New York City, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, judging and, and having contempt for, for the world. I, those, that was my audience. And that's, those are the people we need to keep in mind. So I'm always writing for the skeptic. I'm always writing for the cynic. I don't need to convince the, you know, the, the, the choir who already, already get it. Right, right. Well, here are just some of the notions you raise. And again, I love the fact that you give everyone uh, 12 lessons in the book so that they can make it absolutely applicable to their lives, how Emersonianism can be incorporated into their lives and bring them peace and clarity and the ability to be pragmatic as well. But here are just a couple of the the notions. You, you talk about smuggling things in. Here's what's come into our culture as a direct influence of Emersonianism. Each person creates his own reality. Uh, that's the hallmark of so-called New Ageism, if you will. Obstacles are teachers in disguise. Your character is your destiny. There's some stoicism for you. Wonder and awe are the keys to the kingdom. Nonconformity is the greatest virtue. I know you worked with Andy Warhol. There you go, nonconformity. <laughs> Nature is the doorway to God. Life without self-knowledge is not worth living. All Emersonian principles that have bled and found their ways into American culture, even if we may not know that that's where it came from. Yes. Yeah. And that's another reason that I wrote the book to let people know Emerson is here in our midst. You just don't know it. 
You know, he's the one who said, follow your bliss. He's the one who said, do your own thing. Uh, but we don't understand that. I, I quote in the book and a, a, a graduation speech by George Saunders, the writer, where he's, he's literally channeling Emerson. You know, all that, all that Caesar had, all that Jesus had, you have as well. That's part of our aspirational nature. Mm-hmm. And as we've been saying, there's a, there's a shadow to that aspirational nature, but there's enormous beauty and potential there as well. So understanding that the light is part of who we are and that the light is universal. Nobody owns it. There are no rules about the light and enlightenment in that sense of awakening to our, our true nature. And that speaks very deeply to the American do-it-ourselves kind of mentality, the, the, the sense of, of possibility. That's what we need to feed. There's so much crowing about the, what's terrible in the world and how awful everything is. You know, Emerson said, don't chant the, you know, chant again, you know, chant the beauty of the good. Don't spend your, your life, you know, railing about how horrible things are. We all know how bad things are. Chant the beauty of the good. Understanding that that's that elevation. That's how we are elevated, you know, by holding, maintaining that vision of possibility. And that is, uh, that's what we need more of now. You know, for everyone out there doom scrolling, I'd like to say, turn away from your, your, your smartphone for a second and go sit in the forest or go sit with a loved one. Spend time with yourself to turn off the computer for, for, for an hour a day and just reconnect with the part of you that's fundamental and real and true and good. That's what's going to get us through this. It's not preaching at people and it's not telling people how terrible everything is. That'll just, you know, freak them out worse and, and, and make them want to do less. The book is Lessons from an American Stoic, How Emerson Can Change Your Life. My guest today has been Mark Matuzek. Mark, great conversation. Loved it. Hopefully we'll have a chance to speak again. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Christopher. It's wonderful to be with you. For Jeffrey Mishlove, co-host Emmy Vadness for the fantastic volunteers here at New Thinking Aloud, I'm Christopher Naughton. Thank you for joining us. You are the reason that we're here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.